In the name of God, the creator, liberator, and sustainer of the universe. Amen. Theologically, in the Christian tradition, we speak of orthodoxy, right belief. Jesus was fully human, is an example of orthodoxy. You can't be an orthodox Christian, as some in the early church tried to say, that Jesus was only appearing to be human and not human. That is not orthodox theology. It is not right belief. Jesus, we believe, was fully human. But we not only, but not only do we speak of orthodoxy, we also speak of orthopraxis. Most likely, those of you who are listening to this sermon have most likely heard the theological concept orthodoxy much more than you have heard orthopraxis. Orthopraxis has to do with right praxis, right practice. For example, loving your neighbor as yourself, caring for the widow, are in our times making a preferential option for the poor and the oppressed is right practice. In our culture, generally speaking, most Christian communities have stressed right belief, orthodoxy, much more than right practice, orthopraxis, with a couple of exceptions. Those exceptions being anything that had to do with sex, drugs, and rock and roll, or white evangelical Christians pointing to that great bastion of moral behavior, Donald Trump, and saying to be a true Christian, you had to vote for him, engage in that practice. Today is the third Sunday in Lent. Lent is a season that calls us, among other things, to self-examination taking a personal inventory of where we are individually and collectively on our spiritual journey. Or, as my grandfather, who was a preacher in the mountains of Western North Carolina, used to say, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That has to do with orthopraxis. We believe in the Christian tradition that if you are a Christian, there are certain demands that are placed upon your life and that you are called to be in this world in a certain way. 
Our first reading this morning is from the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. We are given what is called in Hebrew the Dibarium, the Ten Words, or in English, the Ten Commandments. Our second reading this morning, or our Gospel reading this morning, is from the second chapter of John's Gospel. And in that reading, we are given the very dramatic act of Jesus's first public act of ministry in John's Gospel, which was to clean house in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus obviously had some strong beliefs about what should take place in the temple. Because of what he believed was God's will. To understand the Ten Commandments, one must, I believe, be aware of the background, the context of the commandments. Many of you know the history. The history involves the most important act in the history of the people of Israel, the liberation from slavery in Egypt. The third chapter of the book of Exodus tells us that the people of Israel, having been in slavery for a long time, cried to God and that God heard their cry and heard their suffering. The writer of the book of Exodus wants us to know that the God of Israel is one who hears the cries of those who are oppressed. The book of Exodus tells us that God not only heard, but God acted. God acted by calling Moses at the great contemplative event that we refer to as the burning, burning bush. When Moses sees the bush that is not consumed by fire, and then he hears the word of God that says, Moses, I'm going to act to liberate the people of Israel, and I am going to involve you in that act, and I want you to do a few things. Moses immediately says, no, not me, but God insists. And Moses finally agrees. God says, I, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to say to Pharaoh the following thing. I want you to let my people go so that they can worship me. People of Israel had been in slavery for a long time, and they had begun to do what the great Brazilian educator Paulo Freire calls internalized oppression. They had begun to believe what the Egyptians said of them. That can happen, you know. If you're oppressed long enough and you were told day after day that you were worth nothing, you can begin to internalize that oppression 
and come to believe it. God knew that the people of Israel, people of Israel needed to enter into a new relationship with God so that they could come to see who they truly were. Go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go to worship so that they can know who they truly are. People created in the image and likeness of God. Moses goes to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh wants nothing to do with this liberation movement. And he resists. But Moses resists also. And after a long struggle, Pharaoh says, for God's sake, get out of here. Later will change his mind, but it will be too late. And Moses leads the people of Israel across the Red or Reed Sea, moving toward freedom, moving toward a new day. They are beginning the process of breaking the chains of slavery and imprisonment and oppression. They enter into what the Bible calls a wilderness. And they will journey there, becoming a new people. On this journey, God calls Moses to Mount Sinai. And God says to Moses, now Moses, you know that I brought the people of Israel out of slavery, brought you on this journey to freedom, not so that you could do whatever you wanted to do whenever you wanted to do it, but I brought you out so that you could become more fully human, so that you could live what Martin Heidegger would later call authentic existence. You are not to be a slave, oppressed people. You are to be a free people, fully human. When you live that way, you glorify me. And people need to know how they need to live to come out of oppression. People need to know how to live to give glory to God. People need to know how to live to be fully human. And on the mountain, in the midst of this mystical experience, God says to Moses, here is the way I want people to live. This is the way I created people to live. And I'm going to give you 10 steps. You are to practice these steps. You are to live them. You are to move into them. They are to become your way of life. Moses, first of all, the people need to remember that I am God. There is one God. The people need to remember there is one God, and they are not God. Pharaoh is not God. I am God. Remember that there is God. I once had a teacher, who, a very devout Sufi, who said the moment of meditation for him was always that moment and when he remembered that there was God. You shall not make any idols, Moses. You shall not make an idol of money or power. 
You shall not use my name in vain. You shall not say the will of God is for some people to be rich and some people to be poor and those I bless become rich and those who are poor have been cursed by me. You shall not do that, Moses. You shall not use my name in vain. You shall keep the day of rest. You shall honor the Sabbath. There has to be some stop to consumerism. There has to be at least some day when you're not just concerned about making money. You need to realize, Moses, that all people, including the alien living among you, need days of rest. They need time off. For God's sake, Moses, at least a 40-hour work week. Remember the ancestors, Moses. Remember, remember the elderly. Remember those who have gone before you. Remember, remember that you are standing on the shoulders of giants. Remember your parents, your grandparents, your uncles. Remember that, Moses. Remember. Moses, remember, remember that you shall not kill. You shall not kill. Remember, Moses, if, if, you, if you let the alien among you starve to death, you are killing. Treat the alien as your brother or sister, Moses. You shall not kill. You shall not steal, Moses. You shall not steal. People of Israel knew a lot about stolen labor. Don't engage in that. Communities in which theft is such a reality means that trust cannot develop. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not have sex with other people's spouses. How much harm, how much harm and brokenness exists in our world because people, people have not been faithful to their sexual vows. You shall not bear false witness, Moses. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness. How much harm has been done in our own world today by people who tell lies, who tell lies publicly about our reality and want us to go on as if they have done nothing. You shall not covet. You shall not live wanting what other people want. That leads you to believe that you are somehow what you have. Your value is not in what you have, Moses, but in who you are. <coughs> live that way, Moses. And when you live that way, you become a sign to other people of how the human community is to be. You become a sign of what God longs for humanity to be. Martin Luther, in his larger catechism, says, the person who understands perfectly the Ten Commandments 
understands all there is to say in Scripture. We read in our psalm this morning, Psalm 19, the writer says, Your commandments are sweeter to me than honey. The writer of the 119th Psalm in the 73rd verse says, I will always cherish and love your commandments because by them you give me life. Gospel reading this morning from John 2, again, is a very dramatic, very dramatic gospel. We know that John always operates on various levels, and I want to be clear that I understand that a primary level in this text is that Jesus is talking about <coughs> his own body becoming a sacrifice which, on the cross, which will replace the need for any animal sacrifice, and that John is already in the second chapter pointing to the crucifixion. But I think it's also important to realize that when Jesus takes the whip and cleans the temple, he is doing that because he believes that God's name should not be taken in vain. And one of the things that was going on in the temple was that sacrifices were sold at a different price and different level. If you had a lot of money, you could buy a lamb. If you were a poor person, you could only buy a dove. And the lamb sacrifice, the wealthy, was considered often more important than the little dove sacrifice. Jesus said, whenever you do that, you're taking the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Don't do that. Jesus is also saying, even if it's holy consumerism, <coughs> do not turn, do not turn my house into a house of consumerism. And Jesus felt very strongly about the commandments. In the society in which we live, roughly 80% of the population claims to be a Christian of some form. That doesn't mean that 80% belong to churches, but they claim the Christian faith. Of those 80% in a recent survey, only 40% could name more than four of the Ten Commandments, which meant that 60% of the people in our culture who claim to be Christian <coughs> cannot name more than four of the Ten Commandments. Lent is a time that calls us to internalize the commandments. Lent is a season that calls us to self-examination, that calls us to look at the way we are living. How are we living in relation to what God wills for us to do? But how can we do that examination 
if we don't even know the commandments. We are given this lesson during Lent, I believe, to call us again to the need to embrace the commandments so that the commandments can become written in our heart, written in our heart, so that we live by them, we know them. What happens in a society when people no longer believe that it is wrong to kill? What happens in a society when people believe that it is no longer necessary to honor the ancestors? What happens in a society when people believe that it is okay to bear false witness and just do it on a regular basis? As I said earlier, we can politically see the damage of that on a daily basis in our society when so many political leaders bear false witness. A society that has lost its own understanding of the commandments is moving in a way in which people simply become objects to be used so that we can get whatever we want when we want it. The writer of the epistle of 1 St. John says, if you love me, if you love God, you will keep the commandments. We are called to realize that if we are to follow Jesus, then we are called to live in a certain way. If we are to follow Jesus, we must write the commandments that God has given us on our hearts. The old rabbi said, God has given us two gifts. The first gift, the rabbi said, is the law. The law is God teaching us what God's will is for us as human beings. God doesn't want us to kill each other. God doesn't want us to break promises to each other. God does not want us to steal from each other. God wants us to be a loving, caring community. So we have the law. God is teaching us how to live. But even when we know the law, the old rabbi said, we don't do it perfectly. None of us live perfect lives. And so we were given, the rabbi said, the second gift, mercy. So that when you bear false witness against your neighbor, you can repent. When you do not honor the ancestors, you can repent. When you make an idol out of money, you can repent. But you cannot repent if you do not know that you have broken the commandments. When you do repent, the rabbi said, you experience the second gift, and that gift is mercy. We all are in need of God's mercy, and we are promised that whenever we seek to live the way that God wants us to live, and whenever, whenever 
we fail and return to God. God gives us mercy. God gives us God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit and that mercy sustain us on our journey through whatever wilderness we find ourselves and enable us to become a people who take orthopraxis very seriously. Let there be peace among us, and let us never be instruments of our own or anyone else's oppression. Amen.